I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16. I'll begin reading at verse 25 to verse 34. Acts chapter 16 can be found on page 1100 in your pew Bible. In this chapter, Paul and Paul receives a what is called a Macedonian call. He wanted to preach in Asia. However, the Lord, by the Spirit, redirected him, closed that door, and opened a new door to go to Macedonia. And in our passage, he, this is part of the ministry that takes place in a city called Philippi, which is in Macedonia, but it's one of the leading cities in Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony. And before the passage that we're about to read, we hear of the conversion of Lydia, the businesswoman, who comes to know the Lord and is baptized, her and her household. The Lord opened her heart. And then following that, Paul casts out an evil spirit from a young girl. And consequently, the owners of this young girl, she was a slave girl who was in divination, took away money from the owner's pocketbooks. And they were angry at Paul and his uh, co-laborers in the gospel. And because they did this thing, they had the law come after them. And the law came after them. The Roman, Romans came after them and beat them with rods, inflicted many blows upon them, and then threw them in prison. And so the text that we're reading this morning is Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. Let us now hear God's word. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word made his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, before Jesus ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, he gave the great commission, a great command to the apostles, to the church of Jesus Christ, to go make disciples Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, make disciples, baptize. Making disciples, which includes evangelism, 
baptizing and teaching is the mission of the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, and the mission of his church. God bestowed power from on high to enable the apostles and prophets, Christians, to declare Christ and him crucified and risen. You remember on the day of Pentecost when he poured out his spirit upon the church to speak boldly the word of the Lord. The book of Acts is a wonderful, inspiring book of the Bible that records the continuation of Jesus' work through his servants by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. The book of Acts is an inspiring book book that teaches the continuation of Jesus' work. Jesus is still working. He's still working. He works through his servants by the power of the Spirit as disciples are being made and baptized and being taught. And here in our passage, we have Paul and Silas imprisoned. Paul, we know, was a persecutor of the church until Jesus personally confronted him on the road to Damascus, bestowing a great light upon Paul and blinded Paul. Jesus had mercy upon Paul, who was a murderer. A persecutor, a hater of Christians. But God, being rich in mercy, saved him, calling him to be a missionary to the Gentiles and to the Jews. Because when he went to major cities, he went to synagogues to minister to Jews and preach that Jesus is the Christ. Paul and Silas, by God's Spirit, journeyed to Macedonia and to its leading city called Philippi, where they see the mighty work of God, but also find themselves in a very difficult place, prison. Where the Lord opens prison doors and breaks bonds. We see that in the opening verses. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him or to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. It's late, it's cold, it's dark, it's uncomfortable, it's incredibly painful, as they are bound to chains in the wall. Remember, they just received severe blows by rods, blood seeping through their garments, if they had any garments on at all. Trying to get some sleep at midnight was nearly, well, probably impossible. Beaten, battered, and bloodied by rods for the sake of who? For the sake of Christ and the gospel. Their garments stained with blood, having been susceptible to infection and fever. Their wounds sting and burn. And yet they have the courage to face the adversity. How do they face it? Paul doesn't cry foul. He doesn't throw the flag. Time out. And he had every right to cry foul because what? He's a Roman citizen with Roman rights. But he doesn't mention it, does he? Not yet. 
The Lord has a plan. The Lord has a plan for Paul and Silas. Is Jesus really worth it? Is he really worth the suffering and even the prospect of death? Is Jesus really worth it to you? It's absolutely worth it. He's worth it. Evangelizing and making disciples is not the work of the faint-hearted. It's not the work of the cowardly. Despite unjust actions and persecution, Paul and Silas remained faithful because they knew that they were suffering for the cause of Christ. They were unmoved by evil opposition to Christ. They knew that they were suffering for the cause of the gospel, but the person that was really being offended was Christ himself. If they persecute you, what are they actually doing? They're persecuting me. The power of God sustains these two men as they prayed and sang hymns to God. Prayer and praise are the proper responses to disciples of Jesus. Especially, especially in those painful, hard times, those dark providences of life. Where God brings us through, we enter in those dark days by his providential hand to discipline us. To show us how to trust in him. Paul and Silas learned that. Paul and Silas had a reason for the hope that was within them. Jesus Christ was Lord of their lives. He was their master. He was their savior. He was their eternal hope. What were they praying? Perhaps they were praying for deliverance. Lord, save us from this predicament. Save us from these chains. Open these doors, O Lord, by your power. Perhaps they praise God for counting, for God counting them worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ, as Peter and the other apostles did earlier on in Acts when he escaped from prison, when he was out of prison by the grace and power of God. And they celebrated that that Peter was able to, to, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I don't know, maybe they were thinking of Psalm 42, verse 8, where the psalmist says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Whatever was going through the minds of the, these two men, it was prayer and praise. The content... We can't know for certain, but they were praying and praising the Lord. But God wasn't the only audience, was, was he? Prisoners were listening to their prayers and praise. Let me tell you something, Christian. Let me tell you something, and I'm preaching to myself. Unbelievers watch and listen to you. They watch and listen to us. And it's not so much in the blessings of life that they're watching us. 
It's in the darkness of life that they're watching us. Where is your hope now, Christian? Who will you trust in now? Yes, you were trusting in him when there were good times. But how about the pain and suffering and sorrows of life? Are you praising and praying to God then? Or are you crying foul? Am I crying foul? How will you handle the pressure? Where do you put your hope? Do you have joy only when life is good? That's the paradox of the Christian faith. That a Christian can have joy in darkness. Because the light of Christ dwells in us. As they were praising God and praying to God, they were being heard, not only by God, but by prisoners. And as they prayed and praised the Lord, a great earthquake violently shook the prison, opening doors and loosening chains. Now God could have sent an angel, but he chose not to. He sends an earthquake, demonstrating his power to rattle and shake and make a prison tremble. The jailer who was asleep awoke and trembled at the sight of the prison doors open. Not knowing yet that it was the Lord himself who caused this earthquake to happen. So that this great earthquake would unlock doors. Would open doors. Would break bonds and chains. Our God is a God of power and might. He not only physically opened these doors, but He spiritually breaks hearts that are in bondage. The Lord opens human hearts and breaks the bonds of sin. Secondly, the Lord opens human hearts and breaks the bonds of sin. When the jailer woke, look with me in your Bible at verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all... And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Here we have the beginning, the making of a disciple of Jesus. He saw the doors open and he didn't see prisoners because it was dark. He assumed that he escaped, but his assumption almost cost him his own life by his own hand. He was about to commit suicide because if the prisoners escaped by Roman law, he would be held accountable. He would be guilty. In Roman law, there's what's called the Code of Justinian. And the Code of Justinian says this in part, the custody and care of imprisoned persons transfers upon the jailer. So it's the jailer's responsibility who must not think that some miserable and vile dependent will be responsible. If a prisoner should in any way escape, for we desire that he himself 
that is the jailer, shall suffer the same penalty to which the prisoner who escaped is shown to have been liable. He knew that he would be a dead man. And as the jailer prepared to take his life, he couldn't see Paul, but Paul saw him. The apostle says, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Paul intervenes. Paul saves the jailer from himself. And then the jailer runs into the prison cell, finds the prisoners there, Fear strikes the jailer, and he falls to his knees before Paul and Silas. Not the other prisoners, but before before Paul and Silas. And he asks them, as he brings them out of the jail cell, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Of all the questions a human being can ask, that is the best question. That is on top of the list. If you don't ask that question, and if I don't ask that question, we've missed the boat. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If we miss that question, we miss Christianity. We miss the faith. We miss what God has promised sinners. Because what does he recognize? He recognizes that he is in trouble. Physically, perhaps. More so spiritually. This question reveals that this man's heart is beginning to be opened by God to hear and then receive the word of Christ. He is on the threshold of faith. One commentator writes this, His interest was in eternal security and not job security. Forget about my job at this point. I want to ask you a question. If you, Christian, had the opportunity to speak to a believer and you only had a few moments, what would you say? Think about it, Christian. Someone is on the precipice of death and you had a few minutes, not even, what would you say? What hope do you give that person? I had a phone call with an individual who was claiming to be a Christian, he said, well, you know, it's, it's kind of hard. I can't, you know, it's got to go through these hoops, you know, these, and he's just trying to lay out a gospel that was so complex and complicated that the person would have been dead 10 years ago. If you had a few minutes what would you say? Ready? Go. Think about it in your mind. What would you say? 
This man is asking a serious question. Are you going to give a serious answer? Am I going to give a serious answer? What does Paul and Silas say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. God works in individuals and families. He opens hearts and homes to hear and receive the word. Interestingly, the jailer was free physically, right? But spiritually in bondage, whereas Paul was in bondage physically, but he knew freedom in Christ spiritually. You see the paradox there? Even in a very dark place, Paul was spiritually free. He was in the light. Paul is making disciples while he's in prison. While he's in prison, he's... And then at verse 33, look with me in your Bible. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized once... At once, he and all his family, by the grace of God, the door of his heart was opened, and he was a converted man by the power of God. And the jailer washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. And after that, he and his household immediately were baptized, which signifies and seals to the believer the spiritual cleansing that they received by the wounds and blood of Christ. You see what's going on here? Earlier in verses 11 to 15, when Lydia was converted, she received the word of the Lord. God opened her heart to believe. She too was baptized with her household. Jesus Christ instituted baptism when he commanded the church to go and make disciples, baptizing them. Why baptism? Well, as I read in the form earlier, there were several, several reasons why it is instituted It's an outward washing of an invisible grace. It signifies the washing away of sins. Just as water washes away dirt from the body, so too the blood of Christ washes away our sins. Christian, when you were baptized, you now look at Garrett being baptized and you remember your baptism. Or if you were a child or an infant who was baptized, Your parents told you that you received the promise of God in baptism. That just as surely as you saw that baptism, that's a sign and seal to you that Jesus washes away your sins by his blood. It's a sure testimony and witness that what he has accomplished for sin is true. God gives us these outward, visible signs and seals like baptism in the Lord's Supper, using our senses to take hold of these promises of God to know that they are true, that your salvation is found solely in Christ, not in the water of baptism. It's the thing signified in baptism that matters, and that is the blood of Jesus. Baptism also symbolizes new creation or new birth 
by the Spirit. That's why it's called the washing of regeneration. It doesn't literally regenerate or cause a baby to be born again. It points to, it points to regeneration. Well, baptism also is for believers and their children as a right to enter the visible church of Jesus Christ. We enter the church, we become members of the church through the, through the sacrament of baptism, which signifies all those blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, the washing away of sins, regeneration, new birth. But what about infants or little ones? Were little children included in these household baptisms? Churches that baptize infants or little children like to use these passages of Scripture, these household baptisms, to support infant baptism. But those who argue against infant baptism say that these household baptism passages shouldn't be used because it's an argument of silence. And in many respects, it is an argument from silence. Because we, it doesn't say that babies or infants were being baptized in these households. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Interestingly, he says that he, why didn't the whole household, why didn't the whole household rejoice that they all had believed in God? He's focusing on the jailer. The jailer had believed in God, and the whole household rejoiced. They were baptized. Our belief in baptizing little children, infants, ought to be a baptism that rests in the Bible's teaching on the covenant of grace. What do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, we've heard earlier from the forum that Abraham believed in God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed before he received the sign of circumcision. Then he was commanded by God to administer, have this sign and seal administer to his offspring so that his offspring, believers, and their children would receive the promise of God. So Abraham administered the sign and seal to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob. All the male boys in his family or were bought with his money, that is, his household, were circumcised. They received the sacrament of the Old Testament church that pointed to the grace of God, it pointed to the circumcision of Jesus Christ, that is his death on the cross. God promised in the Old Testament that he would sprinkle, in Ezekiel, God promises that he will sprinkle his people with clean water and cleanse them from all their sins. And so then baptism replaced sacrament, the sacrament of circumcision, that bloody sacrament was replaced with a non-bloody sacrament, the sacrament of baptism, which points back to the washing away of sins by the blood of Jesus. 
We've had our hearts circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. If you're taking notes, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. God distinguishes also, throughout the Bible, God distinguishes between the children of believers and the children of unbelievers. God declares children of believers clean. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the New Testament, Jesus demonstrates his love for little children and infants when he welcomes them, takes them into his arms, and blesses them. Why would he do that if they're little Philistines? He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. They too need spiritual cleansing. Paul addresses the children of believers in a way that is consistent with the Old Testament, Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. If these things are true of children of believers, then the sign and seal of the new covenant, namely baptism, should be administered to them. Since they too need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They too are members of the visible body of Jesus Christ. We don't worship here as a community of faith. And our children are in the background. They have no place in the church. I see all these beautiful little children in here. We don't treat them as they're nothing. They're, they, they're, they're not recipients of anything. That we just come, we hope they become born again, and that's it. No, we treat them as if they are part of the covenant community, part of the church, because God promises to them that he will be their God and they will be his people. God opens human hearts and breaks the bonds of sin. He did it to the jailer and he does it to households and he does it to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lastly, believers in Christ rejoice in God's salvation. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Because of the gift of God's grace, they welcomed and served the apostles, Paul and his co-laborers. They enjoy Christian fellowship together. They are together members of the church of Jesus Christ. And they all rejoice in the faith of the jailer. And the narrative focuses on the jailer. And the Lord opening his heart to receive the good news of God's grace in Christ who saves us from our sins and from eternal death. They rejoice. They rejoice. And there's great rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who repents and believes, is there not? Congregation, listen carefully. A joyless faith is an oxymoron. A joyless faith is an oxymoron. Faith without joy is ingratitude. Because if you've been born by the Spirit of God, washed by the blood of Jesus, you know then your sin and misery. You know what the Lord saved you from. 
And in light of what he has saved me from, my proper response is rejoicing. Oh, Lord God, thank you for having mercy upon me. Thank you for saving me. This jailer once lived in despair, but now he's alive and rejoicing. And he's rejoicing in heaven. He was blind, but now he sees. He was lost, but now he is found. Like Paul and Silas in the prison, the jailer becomes a disciple of Jesus and a person of prayer and praise. You see how it comes back now? Paul and Silas were praying and praising God. What is the jailer and his household doing? They're doing the same. Because God, by his grace and mercy and power, is making disciples through his church to make us a people of praise and prayer. A joyless church is an oxymoron. Make, the church makes disciples, baptizes and teaches. It's difficult. And more often than not, it's messy. Expect difficulties. And yet know the joy of the Spirit and the salvation of souls by the grace of God. Paul went through that darkness and hardship. But what was the result? He was able to make disciples and baptize He was able to see God work in a mighty way, though he was in prison, a mighty way in which God brought this jailer to saving faith in Christ. God doesn't waste our lives. Whatever he brings in our path, they are used to be used to his glory and honor and for the furtherance of his kingdom. And so you and I don't know so often what he is doing in our lives, especially in the deep and dark providences, in the hardships of life, because he's got a plan and purpose just as he has a plan and purpose, or had a plan and purpose for Paul and Silas, that even in suffering, they would make disciples and see one who was once lost now be found, one who was blind now see. Expect difficulties. In this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us live our Christian lives looking to Jesus always, praying for the power of the Spirit to work in us and through us so that our lives are not wasted but used to making disciples, giving glory to his name. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you open hearts by the power of your word and spirit. And I pray, O oh Lord, that there are, if our, there are any here who have not turned in repentance and faith to Christ, who are still in bondage spiritually to sin and its misery, O oh Lord, may you turn hearts and minds to Christ. For the promise is true that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Oh, Father in heaven, help us as a congregation to be zealous in the faith, fervent in hope, and have a joy inexpressible, a joy that is passionate and a joy that is exalting Jesus. 
who paid for all of our sins and washes us new as white as snow. We pray this in Jesus' name.